Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that now has merch, if you can believe that. We know it's crass consumerism, but I'm drinking out of a Bitchy History mug right now, so it's worth it. You can find the link to the store on bitchyhistory.com. We've got stickers, we've got shirts, we've got motherfucking tote bags. We've even got candles. Check it out, and if you have suggestions on what podcast-related merch you'd like to see, please let me know. There's a contact form on bitchyhistory.com for just that sort of thing. We've also got a Patreon, and if you subscribe, you get access to a super-secret subscriber-only episode once a month, which I'm calling the Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss Sessions. The first episode of that will drop on July 27th. There's also several other perks that you can get at, depending upon what level of support you want to give. So please check it out. A link to it is on bitchyhistory.com as well. Welcome to episode 14 of Bitchy History, and you are not seeing things. The logo did change. We're in our hot girl era, and that required a new wardrobe, thanks to Canva. This is not a sponsored episode. I just really love Canva. However, if they want to sponsor the show, I would not say no. Anyway, on to the history. For today's episode, we are headed outside of America and looking at some of the underpinnings of the intellectual thought and rebellion that created the foundations for the American Revolution. And there's no better place to start than the Age of Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, the rationalistic sibling of the religious rabble-rousers of the Great Awakening that we talked about last week. Around the same time the English settlers were establishing the first forms of government in the New World, in Europe, new political ideas were also gaining ground. The philosophical movement of the Enlightenment began to come to popularity in the 17th century and had global impact through the 18th century. It focused on a range of ideas that centered on the value of human happiness, the pursuit of knowledge through reason and evidence, and ideals like liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional government, and the separation of church and state. Prior to the Enlightenment, the Catholic Church reigned supreme as Europe's preeminent religious and intellectual leader, but during the 1500s and 1600s, several events began to challenge its hold on power. Martin Luther's Reformation and split from the Catholic Church, which we talked about back in Episode 7 when I gave you the rundown on the history of the Puritans, was one of these challenges. People began to question the traditional authority of the Catholic Church and broke away to begin forming their own religious denominations. At the same time, the political upheaval in Europe during the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 would cause many people to start questioning the intelligence and authority of religious and political leaders that had waged a decades-long war with millions of casualties because they couldn't agree on what religion to force people to follow. That is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. Totally agree. But most wars are started for very dumb reasons. Like 70-year-old men who were unwilling to accept that the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991 and Ukraine doesn't have any interest in helping him rebuild it. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. But the other major change in society was the scientific revolution that took place during the 16th and 17th century. Science became its own discipline, and major developments and discoveries in mathematics, physics, astronomy, biology, and chemistry were happening. We realized that the natural world was something that could be observed, researched, and experimented on, not just taken on faith. From this revolution, the names Galileo, Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, Sir Francis Bacon, among others, become famous and build the foundation for the modern STEM field. Empiricism ruled the day, and while many of the thinkers of this era were religious and still had faith, they rejected the idea that belief in God was the only thing needed to understand the natural world. 
So we see a slow eroding of the power structures that had traditionally run European society. In essence, the 1500s through the 1700s are the rebellious teen years for the European population. And just as it is with real teenagers, the results vary wildly in how that rebellion turns out. For some, it's rebellious experimenting with Copernican heliocentrism, the nerds of the world. And for others, it's violent revolutions where people get their heads chopped off in mass. The, uh... Mean girls of the world, I guess. How many of you have ever felt personally victimized by Regina George? Look, it's not a perfect metaphor, but you understand what I mean. People weren't taking things for granted anymore. The ideas of the Enlightenment undermined the authority of the monarchy and the church, both Catholic and Protestant in some ways. And this period of philosophical, you can't tell me what to do, you aren't my real dad, sets the stage for the political revolutions that spread throughout Europe and the Americas in the 18th and 19th century. The Enlightenment gives us many famous recognizable names. Diderot, Hume, Kant, Spinoza, Voltaire, Rousseau, Montesquieu, Locke, Smith, and Hobbes. If this were a podcast about philosophy, I could spend entire episodes on each of these figures. But it's not. And thank God for that. Because this is an episode meant to help you understand the foundations of the American Revolution. So we're just going to spend some time on the ideas and philosophers who had the most influence on this event specifically. There are several ideas from the Enlightenment that greatly influenced the future of America. The questioning of religious dogma gave rise to the concept of deism, an intellectual movement that accepted the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but rejected belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with humankind. Deists tended to share a disdain for religious dogmatism and blind obedience to tradition and faith. This is a mindset tailor-made for a revolutionary because it rejects traditional power structures. Many of the most well-known figures of the American Revolution were deists, not the Bible-thumping evangelicals that Republican politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene might like us to believe they were. Yet the Founding Fathers quoted the Bible constantly and were driven by their faith. To be remembered that way would definitely be a shock to someone like Thomas Jefferson, who took his deism so far as to entirely deny the divinity of Christ. The Jefferson Bible was a project by Jefferson in rewriting the Bible with no mention of miracles, angels, or the resurrection of Jesus. I could go on, but would get bogged down in discussion of the relative faith of each founding father compared to the modern-day religious evangelicals in Congress, and that's a topic for a future episode of the podcast. A generally negative view of dogmatic religion also led to the embracing of the idea of toleration, which would play a part in building what we think of today as the ideas of religious freedom, free speech, and freedom of expression. Toleration was a belief that the hatred or fear of other races and creeds interfered with economic trade, extinguished freedom of thought and expression, eroded the friendship between nations, and led to persecution and war. Toleration imagined an age in which enlightened reason, not religious dogmatism, would govern relations between diverse peoples with loyalties to different faiths. Another idea that would go on to influence the American Revolution was the concept of liberalism, the notion that humans have natural rights and that government authority is not absolute, but based on the will and consent of the governed, a concept we'll get back to in a minute when we discuss the philosophers whose touch we can see in the American Revolution. Republicanism, which has nothing whatsoever to do with the Republican Party, just to clarify that, was another idea we borrowed from the Enlightenment. This was the idea that a nation ought to be ruled as a republic. Selection of the state's highest public official is determined by general election rather than through the way that monarchies were ruled by hereditary right. You might recall from episode six, I mentioned that the concept of Republican motherhood, where it is the job of mothers to instill Republican values of patriotism and virtuous citizenship in their children as well as educate them. 
there are certainly other aspects of the Enlightenment that would go on to influence the early years of America, but we'll leave things like conservatism and scientific progress until a later episode, since I would argue that neither of them are directly related to the foundation of the American Revolution specifically. The final concept I'd like to discuss in relation to the Enlightenment's influence is one that was discussed by a huge number of Enlightenment philosophers. We generally refer to it today as the social contract. This is the basis of the idea of liberalism in many ways, as it concerns the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. The social contract model argues that individuals have consented, either explicitly or tacitly, to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the ruler or to the decision of the majority in exchange for protection of their remaining rights or the maintenance of a social order. The contract is an agreement between the ruled and the ruler, which outlines the rights and duties of each to the other. Government is not meant to be one-sided, with the ruler holding all the power because the consent of the governed is needed to maintain the agreement. So both sides need to hold up their end of the bargain. Thomas Hobbes was the English philosopher that is most commonly associated with the 17th century concept of the social contract, though technically the general concept dates way back to the Greek philosophers. Hobbes was a mixed bag, really. If you cast your mind back to episode 6 again, you'll remember that I noted that Hobbes saw the family unit as a little monarchy in which the husband and father was the sovereign, which, while he was a man of his time, is generally a pretty crappy way to view a relationship. He was also a major killjoy with a fucked up view of human nature. He argued that people are inherently wicked and selfish and therefore government was needed to control them. In his treatise, Leviathan, which was published in 1651, Hobbes set out his doctrine of the foundation of states and legitimate governments and creating an objective science of morality. Much of the book is occupied with demonstrating the necessity of a strong central authority in order to avoid the evil of discord and civil war. To quote chapter 13, Whatsoever, therefore, is a consequent to a time of war where every man is enemy to every man, the same consequent to the time wherein men live without other security than what their own strength and their own invention shall furnish them with. In such condition, there is no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Fun! I'm writing an article over on my blog right now that's about the Hobbesian view of human nature and how it's represented in modern dystopian fiction, by the way. According to Hobbes, all individuals in society must cede some right to the sovereign authority for the sake of protection. Power exercised by this authority cannot be resisted because the protector's sovereign power derives from the individuals surrendering their own power for protection. The individuals are therefore the author of all decisions made by the sovereign. To quote Hobbes again, He that complaineth of injury from his sovereign complaineth that whereof he himself is the author, and therefore ought not to accuse any man but himself, no nor himself, of injury, because to do injury to oneself is impossible. For Hobbes, there was no right of rebellion, and there was no doctrine of separation of powers in his form of theoretical government. According to Hobbes, the sovereign must control civil, military, judicial, and ecclesiastical powers. So while Hobbes is proposing a form of the social contract, it's not one that really jives with the form of social contract that supported the idea of a revolution against your parent country. That idea would come from another philosopher who wrote about the state of nature and the social contract, John Locke. Not the guy from Lost. This is a different John Locke. Just to clarify, 
Not that I thought you'd confuse a 17th century philosopher for a fictional character played by Terry O'Quinn, but let's just say this confusion has happened before in one of my classes, so yeah. Different guys, same name, big difference. For one thing, the 17th century philosopher had hair. Locke was an English philosopher and physician who is widely regarded as one of the most influential thinkers of the Enlightenment. He's sometimes referred to as the father of liberalism, and his most famous work is undoubtedly his two treatises on government, followed by a letter concerning toleration. His political theory was also based on the idea of the social contract, but he had a very different view of human nature and society than Hobbes. Locke believed that human nature is characterized by reason and tolerance. I used to agree with him, but in the last few years, it's gotten harder and harder to do so. In a natural state, Locke believed that all people were equal and independent, and everyone had a natural right to defend his life, health, liberty, or possessions. But rather than constantly having to defend ourselves, we form societies so that instead we can have a government which resolves conflicts in a civil way. So we give up some freedom for the safety and security, just like Hobbes. But this is again where Hobbes and Locke diverge, and where Locke's influence can be most clearly seen in the building blocks of the revolution. Locke advocated governmental separation of powers rather than a dictatorship of a single sovereign, and believed that revolution is not only a right, but an obligation in some circumstances. Locke writes this in his second treatise on government. Whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people, who are thereupon absolved from any further obedience and are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. Whensoever, therefore, the legislative shall transgress this fundamental rule of society, and either by ambition, fear, folly, or corruption endeavor to grasp themselves or put them into the hands of any other on absolute power over the lives, liberties, and estates of the people. By this breach of trust, they forfeit the power the people had put into their hands for quite contrary ends, and it devolves to the people who have a right to resume their original liberty. And yes, this is from the second treatise on government, and there are two of them. You might ask what the first treatise on government is, but it's not really relevant to this episode. I'll just say that it's an absolute roast of a man by the name of Sir Robert Filmer, who I can only assume John Locke hated with the heat of a thousand suns based on how thoroughly he philosophically bitch-slapped the man. The full title of the first treatise has the subtitle, The False Principles and Foundation of Sir Robert Filmer and His Followers Are Detected and Overthrown, and he thoroughly destroys the arguments found in Filmer's Patriarcha, which had been published nine years previously. If you can get past the 17th century language, do give it a read. But back on to the second treatise, which has the subtitle of An Essay Concerning the True Original Extent and End of Civil Government. This treatise touches on a number of themes. The state of nature, the condition of human beings before or without political association, conquest and slavery. In two chapters of the treatise, he performs a neat takedown of the concept of slavery by first writing a justification for slavery and then pointing out that the requirements for such a justification could never exist in reality. In providing a justification for slavery, he renders all forms of slavery as it actually exists invalid. He does the same thing with the right of conquest. He proposes one power a conqueror could gain and then demonstrates how actually that power can't be claimed in reality. A neat little job of reverse psychology. Property. Locke claims that civil society was created for the protection of property. Simple enough. 
representative government. Locke feels that a legitimate contract could easily exist between citizens and a monarchy, an oligarchy, or some other mixed form of government. His notions of people's rights and the role of civil government provided strong support for the intellectual movements of both the American and French revolutions. And the right of revolution. Locke declared that under natural law, all people have the right to life, liberty, and a state. Under the social contract, the people could instigate a revolution against the government when it acted against the interests of citizens, to replace the government with one that served the interests of citizens. There are several more philosophers who deal with the social contract, but frankly, I think I'll save Montesquieu and Rousseau for the episodes of the podcast when we get into the creation of the American Constitution, for reasons. One of those reasons is that John Locke is an excellent place to switch to the second topic we're covering today, the end of absolutism. Now, not all Enlightenment thinkers were against absolute monarchy. In fact, many supported it for a variety of reasons. Many saw a strong absolute monarch, as long as they were an enlightened philosopher-king type of monarch, as the key to creating reform. Given that the Enlightenment was taking place in a time not that far removed from the genetic creation of the Habsburg Chen, look it up, I can't explain it via audio, I honestly have no idea where they thought these philosopher kings were going to come from, but... Wishful thinking, I guess. Okay, maybe that crack about the Habsburgs was a little bit mean. I'm sorry I called you a gap-toothed bitch. It's not your fault you're so gap-toothed. It is, however, their fault that they thought family reunions were the 16th century version of Tinder, though. Anyway, let's talk about absolute monarchy. Absolutism is the political doctrine and practice of unlimited centralized authority and absolute sovereignty, as vested especially in a monarch or dictator. In this system, a ruler is subject to no challenge to his authority. There is no Congress, Parliament, or court that can supersede him. So, you know, the version of government that Trump and his supporters wish they had. Never in my life did I think I would like to see a dictator, but if there's going to be one, I want it to be Trump. The most common defense of absolute monarchy was a belief in the divine right of kings. It asserted that kings derived their authority from God, and that even tyrannical rule was justified, because obviously God intended for a genocidal maniac to be put in power to punish the sinfulness of humanity. Going back to John Locke for a second, we see a leading thinker of the Enlightenment who takes this issue head-on in the first of his two treatises. As I mentioned, Sir Robert Filmer's Patriarcha was a treatise that defended the divine right of kings based on the idea that all of the modern states derived authority from the biblical patriarchs. Locke smashes through that argument and says, nah, bad kings are bad kings and we shouldn't have to put up with them just because they claim divine authority. In fact, I think I have some actual audio of Locke speaking about this. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! If I went round saying I was an emperor... Just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away. Okay, you caught me. That wasn't John Locke. Recording equipment didn't exist in 1689, but I firmly believe it's what he would have sounded like. This guy's even got a British accent. But honestly, Locke wasn't speaking hypothetically. He was 16 years old and half a mile away when the truest expression of you can't get away with ruling without the consent of the governed occurred with the execution of Charles I, former King of England. 
Now, this isn't a British history podcast, and frankly, if you want a full rundown on the details of the English Revolution, you should really head over to the first season of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, where he covers it with exquisite detail. But the short of it is that Charles and Parliament disagreed a lot, and Parliament kept trying to use the power of the purse to get him to negotiate and stop doing the stuff that Parliament didn't like. Charles got sick of working with Parliament and dismissed them. There's some back and forth here, but essentially he begins what his critics would call the 11 years tyranny because he refused to reconvene Parliament. Only Parliament is the one that handles taxes. So for 11 years, Charles just has to play a lot of tricky games to raise funds. One of the things that happened was the reinstitution of fines for not attending Anglican services. I mentioned that in the episode about the Puritans, remember? See, it's all coming together. Charles' anti-Catholic views would eventually lead to a rebellion in Scotland, and he'd have no money to put the rebellion down, so he'd recall Parliament. Only Parliament doesn't want him to invade Scotland, so they won't give him the funds. Charles is pissed. He dismisses them again, tries to invade Scotland without the funds to do so, and ends up in an even worse situation. He recalls Parliament again, but now they're the ones that are pissed. They get into a political power pissing match with Charles, and Charles tries to arrest some of the members of the House of Commons on charges of treason, but they escape. Now everyone is pissed. Charles and his family flee London. It's 1642, and John Locke is a 10-year-old boy. He would have been old enough to understand the stories filtering in, how Charles was unable to enforce any of his orders, how he was at war with his own parliament, and it wasn't going well. If God had appointed him, God appeared to be on the side of parliament on the issue of separated powers in government. There's a lot of back and forth and several years of war. Again, if this is of interest to you, go listen to Mike Duncan's podcast on it. The important thing to understand today is that parliament won the war, and Charles was put on trial for treason, found guilty, and on January 20th, 1649, he was publicly executed by beheading in front of the banqueting house of the Palace of Whitehall. The banqueting house, by the way, is the only part of the palace that's still standing, and it's truly a gorgeous building. So John Locke had seen the folly of absolute monarchy for himself, up close and personal. But more importantly, the fall of the monarchy and the subsequent absolute clusterfuck of the Commonwealth would have been a history that the Founding Fathers would have known well. In the course of around 11 years, England went from being a monarchy to a commonwealth to a dictatorship and back to a monarchy again. Oh, right. I forgot to mention, in 1653, Oliver Cromwell dismissed Parliament because they were too difficult to work with. You know, just like Charles had done. And then ruled over England as the Lord Protector, i.e. dictator, until his death in 1658. At which point his son took over, because apparently being Lord Protector is a hereditary job... His son proved to be incompetent, and Parliament reconvened and decided to give that whole monarchy thing a second chance. So even though England ultimately ends up being a monarchy again, this period had thrown the entire system of absolute monarchy into a very skeptical light. Major institutional changes on the power of the English monarchy would come in the next few years, such as the English Bill of Rights. This landmark piece of constitutional law in England would make Parliament stronger than the monarch and set out basic civil rights for the citizens of England, like trial by jury and outlawing cruel and unusual punishment. And whose ideas helped inspire that law? Why, it was an English philosopher who accompanied Mary, William of Orange's wife, from the Netherlands to England in February of 1689 after the Glorious Revolution. That philosopher? John Locke, of course. Thanks for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history. Also, if you'd like to read more of me bitching about history and popular culture and blackening the name of classic children's authors, I write for a blog, perspectivesonpopculture.com. I've actually been involved with this blog for a while now, I just haven't written for it in a while and kind of 
forgot. Anyway, a link is now on bitchyhistory.com. My most recent articles have been ripping into Roald Dahl's problems with feminism, and I'm currently working on an article about William Golding and Lord of the Flies, which neatly ties into today's episode, actually, since I'm discussing the Hobbesian worldview of the book. And again, I am still laying out the timeline for covering the American Revolution content for the podcast, so next week's episode topic will be a surprise. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you back here next week.